Thank you for tuning in to Bold Talk Radio. I am your host, Pat Williams. And I want to thank you guys for tuning in. This is going to be the third episode in our five-part series with book author Robert A. St. Thomas. If you guys have been keeping up with each episode, uh, Mr. St. Thomas has been giving a great layout of his new book, which is Riddle of Oz. And so we're going to pick it up from there. So Robert, thank you so much. We're in our third episode of it already, if you can imagine. Well, thank you for having me back. Pat. I appreciate it and appreciate uh, the opportunity to share this message with the audience. Awesome. Well, Robert, I thank you again. So listen, let's let's not even dilly-dally around with it. Let's get right into it. So where we left off in episode two, and let me encourage my audience, if you guys have not listened to the first and second part, please, I encourage you guys to do it. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us uh, on Anchor Podcast, as well as our Facebook page. So Facebook, Bold Talk, each episode is there. So I encourage you guys to listen to the first and second parts because that'll give you so much more background and it'll just enrich the discussion that Robert and I are going to have tonight. So Robert, let's get back into it. Where we left off, we were tackling phase six and phase six was dealing with sloth and we were tackling some of the issues uh, uh, we got heavily into the Constitution, so we'll we'll leave that back in episode two. But what we were dealing with primarily, in addition to the Constitution, uh, we were dealing with the quote, as you quote, Star Wars, uh, Hollywood movie celebrities, uh, cults of personality, that sort of thing. But there's another part here in in this phase that you detail under sloth, where you're dealing with, and I'm just going to quote you here. It says. Police are no longer respected as authority figures, but public perception views them as executioners with a license to kill. End quote. So, Robert, let's let's tackle that. What 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 are you what are you getting at with, with that right there in your book? Well, again, we're going through the phases, um, uh, the decade regression type phases where things in our social institutions, our permanent social institutions are being attacked, attacked and corrupted. Uh, the issue with the police is interesting. When I was a kid coming up, uh, police officers really didn't evoke any kind of fear in me unless you were doing something wrong. I mean, you didn't really have this this, this, uh, this idea that a guy would come up on you with a on his shirt, the gun of his, you know, his side, and he was going to basically shoot you. That that, that never came up. The fear I usually would, get, well, kid my age, you think that, you know, the officer would take you to your home if you did something bad, let your mom and dad deal with you. Um, but he, 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 he was not punitive with his, um, in his position. Uh, he was a kid, when I was a kid coming up, he was a kind of police officer, they caught you speeding or something like that. They would have some sort of dialogue, discussion with you, sort of size you, and like, don't let it happen again and let you know, okay? That's how I said, it was, it was like a closeness, a bond with um, police officers when I was a kid, we saw them as heroes, because they were doing jobs that the average person 
uh, would do because you did police work is, is, is dangerous work. But something occurred where um, the police officers were were now like cops and armed because of a lot of anxiety and fear. Something something I believe um, placed that in them. You know, something I believe placed that in them where uh, certain individuals uh, of certain ethnic groups were now seen as individuals that you really didn't want to uh, have a dialogue, a discussion with. You saw them as some sort of, um, you know, adversary that had to be dealt with quicker, you know. Uh, so, so something, something, something caused them on both sides, whether it was uh, like a black guy or a white guy had an issue with some sort of um, issue with the law. They were they were only had been set up, set up for some sort of um, conflict without any kind of discussion whatsoever. So police, again, like I said, were seen as heroes when I was a kid, but now that's been taken away. Police are now seen as like uh, like 007 type uh, characters who have license to kill. And um, walking out, um, you know, uh, making some of life for for you know the, the, the minor offenses, you know. So anyway, so I believe that uh, this is all part of long march type uh, corruption of our our uh, social institutions, where we're we're starting a more of a divide and conquer thing. Um, they like police and the people that they're basically supposed to, uh, you know, protect, you know, the public. Um, so that's what I'm just saying. I think there's something behind that. I think there's something behind that uh, that um, uh, the police are are seen as uh, like some advocate. Now, a lot of that, a lot of that, I do believe, <laughs> comes out of the home. In fact. Uh, I was discussing with my wife uh, last night about um, what the issue that we see between blacks and uh, uh, police officers. And her, her response was, well, you know, perhaps it might be the fact that um, police officers being blamed for the things that should occur in a black home. In other words, uh, if there should be a certain amount of uh, Raising by the father, the mother, uh, and understanding that these people are not out to assassinate you, but they do have uh, a job of protecting, you know, safety of individuals, their private property, so forth. But there's something has been lacking in the home that has produced this this, this fear in these public service officers, uh, and it probably goes back. We were talking about earlier that in the breakdown of the family, uh, the influence of the father isn't there to impart, you know, his knowledge and wisdom to his children about, you know, the 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 the, the etiquette of, you know, walking the streets and dealing with police officers. <laughs> Well, Robert, let me that's let me jump in. That's that's a great place to for me to kind of you know put some questions to you. Now you you unpacked a lot with that, um, and it sounds to me 
what you're saying is, is that it seems to be a uh, kind of breakdown on both sides of the equation where, as you mentioned, when you were coming up as a kid, uh, you know, law enforcement, police officers, uh, unless you were really doing something naughty and not nice, then you kind of had this, you know, obvious reason to fear. Um, and then, as you mentioned, on the other side of it, from I guess from the law enforcement side, uh, there seems to be where there's also kind of a, a disconnect where uh, there, there's more of maybe more animosity or animus, I should say, on both sides. But, but let me ask you specifically, what do you think in the last, you know, since you mentioned since you were a young person and you, your book opens up in 1969, what do you think has transpired in the last 49, 50 years that has caused this disconnect, in particular between the black community and law enforcement? Well, law enforcement signifies authority. And uh, our previous discussions were about the influence of communism on Western civilization or here in America. And I do believe that what has occurred is this, 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 this agenda that uh, has gone unnoticed in this country is basically to promote distrust between white people, black people, particularly anybody in a, in a position of authority. And I think rather than, again, seeing a police officer as a public servant as someone to help you, to aid you, say somebody broke into your home and stole your car, they're now seen as adversaries um, and people uh, of, of, of a certain color there against black people. No, 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 there's, there's a racial situation that has been uh, provoked. Again, when I was a kid, I didn't really have that type of image about a police officer. I saw him like as a hero with somebody that was there that you know, they came to our elementary school to give talks. Um, you know, they would ride you around a police car. I agree with that. We just never had this fear that these guys were assassins. But as the decades have passed, now an animosity has 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 been brewing. And I think it it comes from an external source and that we're we're gonna now sort of stir up this racial thing that black people are criminals and that white people or white men who are police officers who have guns are now these oppressors and they have very little tolerance for uh, a, a, a black man who does any sort of crime whatsoever. You know, overall, the, the media always shows the, the worst uh, uh, case scenarios. I'd probably say, I'm just guessing off the top of my head, probably 90% of the officers have probably never taken a human life, you know, but we only see what has been reported and that um, this one individual that will, you know, take a human life, I mean, he's, 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 he's being filmed, uh, he's a guy that basically has surrendered, he's doing, you know, He's crawling on his uh, hands and knees. He's trying to comply with an officer, but he may not be able to do everything the officer wants. Just because he can't, he, he, he gets blown away, which, which is wrong. But 
you know, where did that come from? And I do believe that, again, it's, it's the breakdown on both sides, you know, and I, and I believe that in both situations, fear has been the, the, the emotion, heavy emotion that's been basically kindled in both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a black people or, or white people, I think that has been abnormally, obviously, the pot has been stirred um, in an abnormal fashion where, you know, like a white police officer just, just doesn't want to take a chance with, say, like a black man under any circumstances. He, you know, a guy wants to basically move up to a home and he is not going to. He's not going to maybe give the black guy his um, his due because there's really no dialogue or discussion that's been um, occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, when I was a kid, we had dialogue and discussion amongst police officers. I don't really don't have that. We don't mm-hmm. really have that. We well, don't have the kind of diplomacy or closeness that mm-hmm. we used to have when I was a kid. Well, Robert, let me let me throw something out on the table because now I've I've actually had this conversation with several colleagues of mine and uh and like you said it, it's a very um it, it's a heart wrenching and 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 gut wrenching kind of thing that we see that's happening and playing itself out in various cases on the news i mean right here in chicago we recently had the uh uh laquan mcdonald um, uh, the young man and, and with the officer and, you know, he was found guilty just a, about a couple of months ago, uh, this early, early this fall. But let me tell you something that a, a colleague of mine, which shall remain nameless <laughs> for the conversation, but he threw something out on the table to me and I'm going to put those cards on the table with you. And this is a black gentleman. So I want to be clear about that. One of the things he said to me, and he, we were talking about, you know, the shootings and the, the Mike Browns, the Laquan McDonald's, you know, it just goes on and on, even though uh, uh, George Zimmerman was not a police officer, but we do know that he was uh, aspiring to be, and he was a community watch person, and he was responsible uh, for taking the life of Trayvon Martin. So we were talking about the whole nine yards. And one of the things that he said to me was this. He says, you know, Pat, listen, he says, from what I can put to this whole scenario is that the reason there's this, 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 in particularly this breakdown of communication and this disconnect between the black community and the law enforcement, law enforcement community, if you will, is he mentioned three things and I'll give those to you. Number one, he did mention the home. And that there's something going on in the home uh, situation with many of these young people. But he also mentioned, even in cases where there's, there isn't anything going on in the home and, and there's, you know, pr- pretty much the stability there. What he did mention was that he believed that there's something causing the attitude difference. And then he mentioned the historical value. So I'm going to actually work in reverse and put the question to you. What he mentioned was, is that when you look at law enforcement, and I thought this was very poignant, how you mentioned, even though you grew up in the sixties, even back then you looked at law enforcement as being, you know, righteous authority, but what he, and he's maybe, you know, between our ages here, he mentioned how, you know, the law enforcement, 
that view, that perception has never really been true for black people. Now, this is his, this is his take on it, not mine. And what he was saying was, well, Pat, if you look at the history of law enforcement and its interaction with the black community, he says, you, you know, we've got footage, you know, on these documentaries, eyes on the prize and, and, you know, just historical footage where, you know, cops are, you know, wrapping people across their heads and, you know, spraying black people down with water hose and unleashing dogs on them. And what did these poor black people, what were they doing? They weren't committing crimes. They were all well-dressed. They were all very articulate. And so what my colleague was saying is that, you know, Pat, listen, don't believe the hype that this is something that's just something that's new. He pointed out the historical viewpoint of that. So do you think that that holds any validity on, on what my colleague mentioned on that particular premise that it's always been brewing. It's just now that it's hitting a fever pitch. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with the <coughs> footage of uh, police officers, uh, you know, releasing, you know, vicious canines on, you know, black men, women, and children. We've seen the powerful water yeah, we've seen we've seen all these atrocities. I I would agree. I would agree that there is a um, uh, you know historical record of that. I can't I can't deny that. Mm-hmm. I can't deny that. So so do you do you agree that. then, Robert, with his aspect of with his premise is is that he feels that that this has been something generational that has been brewing uh, and that knowledge is also passed down. So, I mean, case in point now, you know, you can be a black person. You're not going to, you know, get sprayed down with water hose or, you know, like you say, vicious canines being, you know, released as the dogs of hell on you. But could it be some of the distrust from the black side of it, from the black community side could be that, hey, maybe grandmama and, and, and cousin in them and uncle in them and granddaddy in them were giving me this history, giving me this verbal and I'm seeing these visual histories of law enforcement interacting with our community. And so do you think some of that is has played, has been that arc, if you will, and saying, okay, you know, there were a time that blacks were not having these conflicts per se, but it's been brewing yeah. because of what's been happening yeah. historically. Yeah. 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 Now a way I've looked at it um is this is that Again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, early uh, talk about the ego, superego, and how um, the the ideal person, if you listen to his superego, he, he moves away from the from being a, a, a barbaric individual towards a more saintly. You know, he he has more love, compassion, empathy, that type of thing. And the situation we're talking about, where police officers have, uh, you know, take these dogs on people and spray these people with these powerful water hoses. I think when we're looking at it, something psychological going on. And it, it's racial, but it's something psychological. And I look at it this way, that when an individual doesn't respond appropriately to guilt, he'll come out in one of four ways. When he doesn't respond appropriately to guilt, and he sort of suppresses it, It'll come out one of four ways. One way, it'll be sort of like a introspection, and he gets sort of 
paranoid about me. But if he doesn't respond to him, then, you know, you want to do what I say with Jesus would ask, like love your neighbor type thing. And he wants to get pride, tells him to hold on to it. It will come out in the second form, which is a little bit more escalated, and then he will project, he will project how each house, he will project his anxiety onto the innocent person. When you project your, your anxiety built on the innocent person, you feel that they should be punished. You feel that they should be punished. So when you're seeing things like um, uh, the name calling, like drop the N word on somebody, or being harsh on someone, this this is again a, to me a manifestation of suppressing guilt, and innocent people are suffering because of the suppression of guilt. It'll go to a third uh, uh, level where you then begin to persecute an individual. You get you get to persecute. Now you start to jail them and find everything anything anything they do is wrong. You start to persecute. And the final step, when you when you don't respond appropriately to guilt, and you're dealing with anxiety, the last step is condemnation. This is where you see people getting killed and shot for no reason at all. So, um, yes, I do believe that this is something that has been building for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I think what the issue is, what I think the psychological issue is, they live in communities that don't, that, how do you say, they keep reinforcing it type of behavior. In other words, rather than they, they live amongst each other, okay, like for instance, you live in a white community and they, and they have, they, 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 they hold certain stereotypes about individuals, all oh, these people are this way, this way, that way, blah, 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 blah. Um, that, that's not helping, that's not helping the individual pursue his ideal self, where the ideal self is, you know, I'd like to have a discussion with these people to show that we have more in common than differences. Okay, but if you're living in a, in a community that keeps reinforcing stereotypes of fear, then what happens, again, you, you respond to guilt and you suppress it and then abnormal things come from, okay, whether it's introspection, projection, persecution, or condemnation. So I believe that's what we're, what we're talking about in, in individuals who have been, obviously, stressed by um, family members, classmates, neighbors that, for instance, oh, these people are this certain, this, this way, yeah, these black people are is this kind of way. So rather, rather than stepping aside and saying, well, you know, if I'm going to live in peace with these people or act more appropriately or more civil, won't I find out what these folks are like? Well, we'll only see what we have in common. Um, and that might be a way of them growing towards their ideal self. So, yes, there is a historical precedent from it, but again, in my book, what I try to show is that perhaps maybe there's a psychological component mm-hmm. that folks really, yeah, don't want to pursue. Because those four stereotypic things will occur when, and, you know, when you do not respond to guilt. Okay, guilt is a good thing. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not something that... Um, to be avoided. You, yeah. Yeah, you shouldn't avoid guilt. Guilt is there to make you a better person. Yes. Person to That's right. Your house, and uh, you know, I try to steal twenty dollars out of your guilt. We'll say, no, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, Miss Williams has worked very hard for it. You know, and, and so yeah, you don't avoid. It. But if I respond inappropriately to guilt and steal your money, then I develop 
problems, issues, anxieties. And I'm going to try to justify why he stole it from Pat Williams. And, you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, is a result of, of, of not appropriately dealing with it. So I think that's a huge component that's really not talked about. You know, we, mm-hmm. this is just the fact that, right, there's a historical part of it. But when we look at the psychological part, and I do address that, um, in the book, uh, The Riddle of Oz, so that folks, you know, can look at this a little bit differently. And again, the whole point of it is, is there something I can do mm-hmm. as an individual to, to, to connect with people as opposed to, you know, disconnecting with people and perpetuating stereotypes and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. bad blood between people. Is there something I can do? So, so yeah, I would agree with the colleagues on this. Yes, that, that part is there historically, but could there be something else? Is there something else in that community that's fostering mm-hmm. that type of attitude in that individual? Well, see, Robert, that that's 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 part of me. That's where I want to jump in because that now this is my take on it. I want to give you absolutely. I'm going to shoot from my own hip on this um, because here's what I look at. I'm looking at a couple of factors myself, and I just want to see how you would address what my thoughts are um, on this um, dilemma. Now. One thing about it is, when, and I, by me working in media and that sort of stuff, I've I've been in every type of community. I've met all types of people, um, from saints to sinners, and everybody in between. Now, what I think a lot of times people tend to forget is that police officers, law enforcement, let's just call a spade a spade. They are dealing with the sinners of society. I mean, it, they're not really dealing with saints. I mean, it's not like in your profession, in your your day-to-day profession, you are a medical professional. And you talked about that uh-huh. in the first episode. So, I mean, think about what type of profession you have. You're dealing with people who are sickly or people who are needing recovery. They're needing to be made whole and restoration in, in, in the physical uh, being of their body. So that's what you're dealing with primarily and not everything that deals with that. In my line of work, I'm dealing with talking to wonderful people such as yourself, um, dealing with people, trying to get a bead on what's important, what's not important. But think about a cop's job. And I think this is sometimes what people we all forget. For the most part, they are dealing with <laughs> not the greatest people, not, not, not the best people in society. And I think sometimes... Race and color aside, I think sometimes what you have to contend with on a job, because let's just face it, it is a job. It is a profession. And I think sometimes people are expecting law enforcement to uh, be their uh, pastor and they're not there to be a pastor. And I think some of that has been lost in particularly on the black community. Now, am I saying that that law enforcement should be out here abusing people and no absolutely not but I think sometimes the strain of any job any job I mean think about it they're not talking to nuns all day and they're not talking to you know kids selling lemonade all day they're not they're, they are dealing and contending with people many of these people are pedophiles they're rapists they, they're burglars they're they, you know they're into grand larceny you know they, it's a myriad of the bad So do you think, Robert, that some of that, that maybe the black community, some of the disconnect is that we're also disconnecting from what the law enforcement officer, because I mean, if they run into 10 guys, let's just say they run into 10 black guys. And let's say out of the 10, five of them are really the creeps. 
I mean, these five guys are creeps. These five guys are selling drugs. These five guys are shooting up grannies. So, you know, God forbid, though, they run into the sixth black guy. What will be that guy's, what will be that officer's response? And I think, you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking sometimes as a black community, where the law enforcement is disconnected in the way that we just discussed, how they're disconnected from the black community's humanity. I think that the black community, in some ways, we're also disconnected from their humanity. Because at the end of the day, a police officer is a person too. That's a human being. So if I run into five guys who are creeps, what is going to be my emotional and psychological conditioning or preconditioning when I run into the sixth black guy. And this black guy may be a college student. He may be a pastor. He may be a wonderful dad and uh, a wonderful person in society. But what's going to be my preconditioning for that guy? Yeah, the preconditioning is that the gun is already cocked and uh, ready to fire. Right. In my book, my dad makes a comment. He kind of addresses this to my brother and I. He makes a statement. He says, don't let your sins be the cause of another black man losing his life. Mm. And what he, what he meant by that is, it's unfair to say the black people have profiled probably more negatively than anybody else in this country. Okay. And that you, you're, you're absolutely right. That these guys, that they, they, they know the statistic rate, so the homicide rate, um, know, uh, black on black time. These people read this, okay? Uh, they, 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 they see a culture that sometimes they can't figure out. So you, you see a guy walk around with his pants below his, you know, resting below the cheeks of his behind, and he, and he just look, he, he, he just doesn't look, he doesn't look balanced. Let's put it this way. There's something about him that these guys, that he's, he's with, you know, these guys just don't have. But anyway, my dad was trying to get across is that. Being profiled, don't let your sin be that sin that breaks the camel's back where the next guy he comes in contact with, like a white person, he just assumes that they're all the same way. Mm-hmm. So that if, so, so don't let your sin be the result of somebody that loses life. It might even be 2,000 miles away from something you did, you know? Like, um, um, just quickly, do you remember the situation about Philando Castillo? Yes. Up in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, from what I understand, uh, there apparently was a robbery the, the day before at a liquor store with a guy that looked like Philando Castillo. I mean, he had the dreadlocks, you know, like the little the mustache. He was thinly built. And he basically wanted, um, I think it was like a Fourth of July uh, robbery, that type of thing. And the police Philando was killed after 20 But anyway, the point was, there was an all-point bulletin out for this guy who used a gun on this liquor store, um, uh, uh, store owner, okay? Uh, Castillo, the next day, he and Diamond basically did this time at his park. They, you know, they were smoking some weed in the car, and, you know, uh, you know, of course, there's some reports the police officer pulled them over because it was something, you know, a, a traffic light, you know, it was uh, you know, uh, rear light was out or whatever but he goes up to the car and there's a suspicious activity going on in the car the suspicious activity going on in the car is that in the back seat there's a little girl and Diamond and Philando try to push this this, 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 this weed out and roll the window down and get the fence out and if you remember the officer said that he 
held excessively coming out of the car. Mm-hmm. So we already had stereotyped these, these two as being irresponsible people because he could smell the weed. It showed in his mind they, they didn't really care. They didn't really care about the little kid in the back seat of the car. And it was a suspicious activity, okay? Mm-hmm. Prior to him coming up to the car door and saying, hey, look, uh, what's up? And so Orlando, you know, basically say, look, uh, you know, uh, I got this gun. I, I have a license to, 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 to operate all in on me. So I'm going to show you this so that you don't go crazy on me. But of course, when Orlando reaches to, she's okay, this wilder and all the guy just basically opens fires on him and shoots him. Mm-hmm. I saw that as Mr. Castile lost his life, not because of what he did in the car, but what this guy in the liquor store had did the day before. Mm-hmm. See? And it's kind of like what you're saying, is that cops deal with the drag society, and, you know, this is almost like a perfect storm that occurred with, um, in the Castile situation. The guy the day before, it looked like him robbed the liquor store, Okay, now the next day, he, uh, the police officer stops these two. There's suspicious activity. They can smell weed, and there's a little girl in the back seat of the car. And, you know, the officer, I'm thinking, takes the, the impression like, oh, these people don't really give a damn about anything. Mm-hmm. They don't care about anything, you know? So I'm going to make sure my life is, is, is basically not jeopardized. So, you know, so there wasn't any, 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 in an officer's mind, he wasn't going to give Orlando the benefit of the doubt because he'd already had made his mind up that he was dealing with, you know, irrational people. So he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to whoever was his wife or his girlfriend, but he wasn't going, he didn't trust. Trust factor was gone with Orlando based, based on the situation. So, uh, you know, um, I, I think that's, you know, a lot of this does occur with the black community because the black community should have a responsibility, quite frankly, to all to, 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 to nature. You know, if you're dealing in a situation where you where where we're under this much scrutiny and profiling to begin with, then maybe you should think like, you know, if I do something wrong, maybe my buddy may suffer some consequences down the road that, you know, for something I did maybe a month ago. So Again, you had mentioned there's the breakdown in the home, and I really do believe that mm-hmm. and the father or dominant male in the home that basically is passing down things we talked about with the super ego, morals, ethics, virtue, those kind of things, enhance the fact that these kids, that perhaps this type of profiling or people will tend to look at it a little bit differently than they do now. Right now, we're, we're thought of as a criminal. You know, uh, 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 you know, folks that you can't have a dialogue with because uh, you know we can't we can't afford to let you get the drop on us. You know, I'm gonna get the drop on you first. That type of thing. So it's 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 sad, but I do believe that the breakdown of this type of behavior has started in the home first. Well, now, Robert, let me ask you this, and then we'll wrap up this this part of what we want to talk about, because we do want to move on to discussing mass immigration, which is also part of yeah. this phase six. But let's wrap up this part with the uh, with with uh, the, the issue concerning the black community and the police department. What do you think? Because you mentioned also in this phase about the Star Wars. How do you think black hip hop culture 
may have played a part in some of the breakdown uh, and the disconnect between the black community and law enforcement? Or do you think the hip hop culture has played any part? Some people feel it has, some people feel it hasn't. Where do you stand on that? I, I, yeah, I think it's a negative influence on the youth. Um, if you listen to the type of music that is, 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 is played, it is a move, it, it's a music that basically is very id, id friendly, okay? Mm-hmm. It's about pleasure, you know, um, it's, it's about pleasure. It's about all for me, narcissistic, you name it. So, it, it's a music, it, 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 it's a type of music and a type of culture basically counterculture to where you want to be at, okay? You, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the object is, remember we talked earlier, that the, the whole the ego is to protect the, protect the organism while basically supplying the id with pleasurable principles, okay? And if you remember we said earlier mm-hmm. that, that an intact ego is is like a modern leader to the id. In other words, so basically, even though no morality is there, basically, it's not going to, it's not going to do nothing that's going to harm the individual. It's not going to do anything to harm the individual. Even though it's going to feed the head, it's not going to do anything to harm. But if the ego has been somewhat corrupted, then it becomes an enabler of the head, and the head then basically becomes more voracious in its desire for pleasure. Okay. Mm-hmm. And hip hop music, if you look at it, the imagery, it. That's what it's about, you know. We don't want authority to tell us anything because authority what interferes with sort of pleasure, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, or is it pleasure strong. or is it survival? And, and Robert, I will say this here. I think what a lot of people who are very pro hip hop, I mean, I grew up in the hip hop generation. I like a lot of that music and some of the music I could take it or leave it. But would, would the argument be on that side to say, well, you know what, Mr. St. Thomas, it's not so much that these guys are out for pleasure. I know that's what they show in the, the, the music videos, the girls on the stripper pole and the, 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 the what is that, the crystal, or if they're even drinking that now, but the stacks of money. But could it be that a lot of times these rappers, you know, Ice T, Ice Cube, all of these guys have moved on to be, you know, fathers and husbands and stuff. But I remember in their heyday, in their youth, most of them were saying, listen, even Tupac, even the late, great, legendary Tupac, I love him. A lot of their argument was like, listen, we're not really trying to tell uh, people to, hey, come sell drugs, get the girls on the corner, you know, be at the strip club. But the argument is, is that we're doing this because there is no father in our home. We, we have a limitation of educational skills, of technical skills. We don't know how to build a house. We don't know how to, you know, tie even a, a, a men's tie and put on a suit. So for us, this is survival. How would you address that issue? Interesting question. Interesting question. Uh, Because see, at that point, Robert, I think it's less about pleasure. And I get what you're saying, where we're dealing with the id and the ego and the super ego, very Freudian stuff. But also, where would survival fit in that? Because again, a lot of these guys are saying, hey, you know, we wish we did have a dad in our house who, you know, probably said, hey, son, you know, go to college and become like Barack Obama. But a lot of these guys say, unfortunately, I had no dad around and my mom was kind of spaced out on something else. 
And this was the best way I knew to do just so my little brother or little sister could eat or my grandma could pay her bills and buy her medicine. Uh-huh. Well, I, yeah, I still think it's kind of like the sins of the father that come back to haunt, haunt the children. I think the, the uh, hip-hop generation is something that basically uh, was basically brought on to uh, this generation by really what went on uh, let's say, post-Motown, post-spiritual Motown. The Motown that I grew up on was this, this, this very uplifting, almost spiritual-type music that made you feel good about yourself. I mean, even the names of the people made you feel good about yourself. The four cops, you know, I mean, you, 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 you just felt good about it. But during this period of, of the long march to corrupt the culture, if you recall, um, Gary Gordy decided to go to, to, to basically purposely go after a market. I mean, white people made Motown because mm-hmm. it was traffic so well. Mm-hmm. So what he decided to do, he decided to go after a market and we came up with things like psychedelic soul, this, that, the other. Where basically he was going to push the envelope and he was going from, he was going from this very spiritual type music, okay, to now to this more is more of, uh, uh, how can you say, um, you know, type music. Okay? <laughs> you know, uh, the bump and grind, and the R. Kelly kind of stuff, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. See, see, and, 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 and that started in, that started in the 70s, you know, with funk and stuff like that, mm-hmm. where we went, yeah, we went through this very, you know, elegant way of expressing love, joy, and sexuality, joy, right, right. Right, it's more sexual type So they open up their doors, box, and what we're really seeing is uh, with the hip hop uh, generation is basically stuff that the fathers unleashed onto uh, their children. Because again, like I told you before, what happened in the sixties that was you brought this up that families were very cohesive and they stuck together. Mm-hmm. But, but decade by decade, it went down from eighty uh, percent. 80% were with their family. That's 70%. That's 50%. That's mm-hmm. 40%. You know, you, you see what happens. It's but on a decline. When, when they, yeah. That's exactly what... So they lured, they lured men away from their responsibility with, 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 with these kid peddlers. I mean, things like drugs, sex, you know, clubbing, all this kind of stuff that promoted pleasure. So man is weak. Man is weak. And we said before, the spirit is spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Mm-hmm. And what, what we're thinking is with every subsequent decade, men were being lured away from what they were supposed to, supposed to be like. That's why kids weren't in the house. That's how father wasn't in the house. And so the children were raised by a, an angry mother because it, it, rather than having the, the other component in a family helping to raise the kids, the burden fell on her. And what we were having is uh, now we're producing generations of these feminized males who don't have, you know, that male influence telling them how to basically act. You don't have that male superego influence telling you, hey, son, this is how you're supposed to behave. This is what is expected out, expected out of you. So, so we don't have that. So now we're, we're, we're seeing these responses, and, it, and, and it's being taken to an even lower level. Okay, it's taken to an, an even lower level where there is no respect for, for women is really, you know, I mean, no respect for for uh, family or 
for a long-term relationship. Everything is about pleasure now. Everything is about pleasure now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, it's so, no, it's not to me a survival technique because a survival technique is, is more use your head. Use your head. Use your head to use the brain that you were thinking with. Now the thing is about feeling. Mm-hmm. Everything's about feeling. And feelings are not a survival tactic. Those are the things that get you killed, okay? Those are the things that, that's how you get manipulated in you. Uh, uh, feelings, I mean, um, my goodness, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you, you go into a store or something like that. Well, you should know this is probably the latest to say, but this is people usually feelings against you guys. I mean, all they got to do is, I mean, you go into a supermarket, whether they play music, they play music in the supermarket. Why do they play music? They, they want to play on your feelings so you stay in the supermarket a little bit longer so you buy stuff, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you make, make, you, make, you make the experience pleasurable. You make it pleasurable, okay? So you keep, you know, uh, in a paper, you know, if they, if they want to sell some product, what do they do? They promote some sort of 50% off sale to you women. You guys break down the door just to, get to the store just to make sure you get that sale. But feelings I don't see as a survival tactic. I see it the way of you can be exploited in a very easy way to lose your life. Uh, you talk about Chicago or any black community. Everybody knows the story about a guy getting shot because he looked at somebody the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not intellect, that's feeling. Well, now, Robert, listen, and, and I hear you on that. Let, let's go ahead because we've got about 15 minutes left and I want to really dedicate the next 10 to 12 minutes to let's let's move on to the mass mass immigration. And I'm going to pick it up from this area, this section um, where you say the uh, where you're dealing with the ma- the rise, quote, the rise of mass communication with the spread of knowledge and fall of wisdom. Mass, I'm sorry, mass communication. Let me, let me correct that. The rise of mass communication with the spread of knowledge and fall of wisdom. Mass immigration and pandering to those immigrants by certain politicians and Hollywood movie celebrities set the stage for Star Wars. Now, we already dealt with the, the Star Wars and the Hollywood side of it. Talk to me about mass immigration because that's also a hot button item so much so even as we talk at this very moment of recording this podcast episode our government is in part shut down uh, because our president president trump is saying hey listen i'll shut it down i need my five billion so i can put this wall because there's too many people trying to come from honduras guatemala mexico and i'm shutting it down talk to me where are you going with this uh, in terms of talking about mass immigration, do you not like immigration? Um, everybody has nobody has a problem with legal immigration. We're talking about illegal immigration, where you're basically forcing folks to uh, accept mass of people because you know they're, they're, they're escaping some sort of you know egregious atrocities happening in their country. Mm-hmm. And no one is no one is against people having a good life. No one. I, not, not that I know of. Okay, I don't think Trump is against. The issue is the issue is we said this before about the Berlin Wall. Remember, we said the Berlin Wall was built by the Soviets to keep something out of the Eastern Bloc countries, and we concluded what they were trying to keep out was not people, but keep out Christianity and the Western super because they did not want that to 
corrupt the people in the in the east. Okay, so mm-hmm. they they put up a wall because they basically didn't want that. They and that they didn't they, they, they didn't want to civilize those people. Sure, okay. They, the, the the issue with the mass immigration is not that they're trying to keep people out per se, but they're trying to keep something out, and that is it goes back to a super ego. They don't see they see immigrants as coming sort of. And again, I'm not trying to insult people. I just want people to look at this from a, a psychological point of view and not a racial type thing to see where we're going to be. What they're saying is they're bringing in folks or a mass of people that will dilute the type of superego that made this country what it is. Now, Robert, okay. let me stop right there and jump in. Now, here's what I'm what's just ringing off as a bell in my head now. Now, when you think about it, and I know that, you know, Trump, before he became president, said, look, they're, these people, they're bringing in drugs. They're bringing in crime. They're bringing in... Okay. And I know he was dealing primarily, and I will give this bone to, to President Trump. A lot of people, I, I, he, I believe he was speaking more specifically to uh, groups like the MS-13 gang. But when you don't clarify that and you don't put it within context, people will take it and say, well, of course, Trump Absolutely. is meaning every Mexican person, which I don't personally believe he meant that. But this is what happens when you don't articulate and clarify and contextualize what you're talking about but let's let's take it for the the best assumption that on that statement Trump was just dealing with MS-13 and that's what I take it for but here's the thing you just mentioned about the superego if you really look at immigration really and truly most people that are coming from let's say Honduras, Guatemala. I mean, we saw it just, we are seeing it on our TV almost every day. Uh, the caravans at the border, you see that these people, they've got their babies with them. They're, they've got their spouses with them. They've got their grannies and grandpas with them. And one thing we do know that most people coming from these types of countries, they're very much tapped into super ego because they're very religious. I mean, many of them have the same faith that you have, which is Roman Catholic Catholicism. So why not let these these people over here that are looking to work they're bringing their families like you said they're looking for a better life most of them are absolutely god-fearing and and church attending what's wrong with that there's 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 nothing wrong with that it's how it's being done you see what it's an emotional issue certainly you see a uh a family with a baby in the elderly person on a cane walk into the American people. That's the point of your emotion that nobody wants to turn these people away. The issue is, why now? Why are these people coming now, okay, in mass? Why now, okay? That's what we're saying. Well, somebody may say, why not now? When's a good time to come? Well, again, okay, here's the deal. What is the American dream in your in your mind? You're asking me personally. <laughs> Uh, uh, Robert, honestly, you know, and, and just, you know, sh- you know, as I say, take me out to pasture and, and shoot me. I don't I, I never believed that there was a such thing uh, called the American dream. I've always thought that was very farcical. Uh, I believe that people have dreams. I believe that every every group, every individual have aspirations. But I, I think that's some of in my own personal opinion. I believe that's somewhat of a bill of goods. Uh, that that the American public have been sold as an ideology. I don't know if there's a such thing as a uh, 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 an American uh, the, the American dream, but that's just my position. But you asked that question of me, why? 
Well, again, my one of the the, the riddle of Oz is, is asking the reader a question: um, Is there is there happiness over the rainbow? Is there happiness over the rainbow? Is this pursuit of happiness? If you get over the rainbow, are you really going to be happy? The exactly. The record says you're not going to be happy if you get over the rainbow. That's, that's right. I don't care. I don't care what it is. That's what the historical record says. That's the bill of but, goods. Oh, exactly. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's one of the, that that that's a situation we address in the book too, where we talk about Dorothy and her adventure in Oz. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's all political. But, anyway, but the point, the point I'm trying to get to is that why now? Why, why are we having this, this mass immigration of, of of people who probably were living pretty decent lives where they were at? What, what is there to gain in this country? Well, well, well Robert, I, I have to disagree with that because I would tell you if you're looking at a, a family who's living in Honduras and there's a lot of guerrilla warfare going on there and in Guatemala, there's extreme poverty. Now, I grant you, Mexico is certainly much better off than Guatemala or Honduras. But even in Mexico, there's certainly much more poverty there. So I don't know if these guys are living relatively good. But if I could uh, tackle your question, you say, well, why now? I think many in our audience would say, well, like I said, why not now? Because you're looking at, let's look at something that's happening in America. Uh, if I'm a person who's sitting in Guatemala, I'm sitting in Honduras, I'm sitting in, uh, let's say, Jalisco, Mexico, somewhere. I'm looking at, hey, right now, President Trump is touting the stock markets. Well, he can't tout it now because it's basically been crashing out, you know, the last several weeks. But before December, you know, the market is looking good. President Trump is touting that. It is true that President Trump has been able to maintain uh, a really good economic record. And uh, he's actually been able to not just maintain it, but to even excel in it. So if I'm a person, I'm looking at that. I know, okay, guess what? I'm watching CNN. I'm getting that somehow on my phone or whatever. I'm picking it up off of whatever communication. Hey, things are going real great in America. So if America's economy is doing great and everything is on the up and I'm suffering here, hey, why not grab the the, the family and the, the cat and the dog and let's hit the road. Let's let's come to America. Okay, well, how how would they survive in America? Well, here's what they understand. They understand that there's jobs. Yeah, but but hear what I said, Robert. Here's what I think that many in the many immigrants understand. They understand that there's something here that they may not have a lot there of, and that's jobs. Now, again, we could get into another discussion, and we'll probably pick this up in episode four. But you know, here's the argument. I, I'm sure you remember the previous. Uh, president of Mexico, uh, which was uh, Mr. Vicente Fox. And a few years back, okay, Vicente Fox got in trouble because he made what a lot of people considered was racially tinged and if not an flat out assault and slur against the black uh, American community when he said, listen, hey, why not let my people come to America? Because the black guys don't want those jobs. These black guys ain't trying to take a two fifty, a three fifty, a four fifty dollar an hour job, and those jobs are there. So let you know, let my guys get over there, and they can take those jobs. So I think, even though that was pretty below the belt statement, but many would argue that you know former President Vicente Fox actually may have been putting his finger on the pulse of something. Do 
uh, our black community, you know, do our black men want a $450, $550 an hour job? Do our black women want a $3, $50 job an hour? Now, that may be peanuts to the typical American, but to someone who's coming from Honduras, where you're getting pennies to the dollar, man, $350, $450, $550, and please don't let it be $650 or $750, man, you feel like, I've hit the jackpot. Well, I, I, I do understand that argument. I, I think the average black person would take a job if it could sustain them. Well, see, that's the that, but that's that's the issue, Robert. Three dollars an hour. It's not sustainable, right, to the average black person. Okay, so how how, how does the immigrant pull pull it off? Well, because here's why. Because Robert, here's why. Here's why. Here's why the immigrant, I could see, understand that they can pull it off. Here's why. If I'm making pennies and I'm somehow able to feed my kids and and whatever and so forth, and if I can get into a country that's going to pay me, let's say, anywhere between $450 to $750 an hour. Now, remember, I'm not just coming by myself with my little duffel bag. I'm coming with maybe about seven of my relatives. If we all can kind of get here, plant our little flag pull our resources together if it's seven of us all making 750 an hour which we've just come from making seven cents a week you tell me we can't prosper on that and i'll tell you sir oh you've got another thought coming well the mathematics looks good but still um uh, seven seven people with the average american prices you know of, of apartment um food um, insurance. Uh, to, what I'm saying is, I think black people are faced with that too, but I, I don't see it being sustainable. I think they'll just say, hey, look, um, unfortunately, I'll just about to take care of me rather than put this effort towards working for something where it had a net gain no matter what I do. Oh my God. Robert, uh, listen, nobody, I, I, I'm getting the, Robert, I gotta stop you. I'm getting the red flag, but here's what I wanna do. We're gonna wrap this segment. And if you're up to it, let's get into episode four, because here's why I think we're, we're leaving it at a good spot. Uh, I'm getting that red flag. So I want to wrap it here and we'll talk off the air and see if we can go ahead and knock out episode four. So with that being said and done, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to Bold Talk Radio this evening. Uh, Robert, if you can let them know, where can they find your book very quickly? Uh, Riddle of Oz. Yes, Barnes and Noble, Amazon uh, dot com. Awesome. Uh, probably you can pre-order it now. It's probably be ready for you by uh, first of the year. Great. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Wonderful. All right. So thank you so much. No problem, Robert. Listen, we'll talk off the air. And everyone, thank you so much for listening to Bolt Talk Radio. I am your host, Pat Williams. We will pick it up in episode four with Mr. Robert A. St. Thomas, the author of Rill of Oz. And until next time, I'll see you.